I got this. <laughs> Dark chocolate. Or fresh, like, rolls out of the oven. Oh, can't resist. I try to avoid too much bread, but if it's fresh bread, you got me. Okay. So, guilty pleasure. I was thinking putting off the flesh. I don't know. Try to do a correlation. I'm following my idol here, El, uh, Heather, whatever. Okay, anyways, but... We read this week about putting off the flesh. Ladies, I just have to say, these chapters are building on each other. And if you remember what Rhonda in chapter 1 talked about, and then the old self and the new self, and then this week, how it could really become practical in our lives. And this is, this is like the key to living a life of freedom. Everything that we'll be studying is going to be built on these. And I hope I could just fit this all in. Because you can't really talk about putting off the flesh I know I shared this once a few years back, but, you know, C.S. Lewis just has a way with words that I don't, and he has a way of putting things, spiritual, biblical truth in ways that you can understand and write them somehow in a kid's book, right? <laughs> so how many of you have read Voyage of the Dawn Treader in your book? Oh, so lots of you haven't. Amazing. So this is exciting. I get to share this with you. Um, okay, so there's this. Have you seen any? Do you know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? More familiar with that one? Okay, so you know Lucy and Edmund. Well, they had a cousin, and his name was Eustace. And he was rotten and spoiled and mean. He was just not a nice person. And they were visiting him, and he got caught up in their adventure to Narnia. Very reluctantly, by the way. And he caused all kinds of trouble for them. But on part of their adventure, they ended up on an island, and he found a dragon's cave full of the dragon's treasure. And um, so he's in the cave, and he's just imagining all the stuff he's going to do with his newfound treasure, how many lives he can make even more miserable. And he takes a beautiful bracelet and puts it on his wrist, and he falls asleep dreaming about his new life. Well, he wakes up in intense pain because that beautiful bracelet that was on his wrist is now pinching him very tightly because he's no longer a boy. He is now a dragon. He has turned into the dragon overnight. So he is very distressed, mostly. A lot of it's because of this intense pain that he has on his arm. Um, but also now he's completely cut off from mankind. I mean, he tries to go and communicate with the kids, and then, like they're, everybody's terrified of him. They just see a dragon, right? Um, so he's cut off, and eventually they figure out who he is, but he's still a dragon, and he does not want to be a dragon. He's a dragon in a lot of pain, and he cries his hot dragon tears. And eventually the hero, you guys love Aslan, the great lion Aslan in his mercy and grace comes to Eustace and he brings him up to a mountaintop and there's a beautiful garden and if you've seen the movie by the way they skip this whole scene, it's the best scene in the whole book and they skip it, okay and they bring him up and there's a well in the middle of the garden and Eustace knows that if he could just get in that well then his pain would all go away but Aslan tells him well, you have to undress first. And he's sort of confused, but then he realizes, oh, dragons have skin. They have scales, and soon they shed it. So he starts to take his claws, his dragon claws, and peel away at his scales. And he gets rid of his first layer, but he looks down, and there's another layer of scales. So he does it again. 
more scales, even uglier and nastier than they were before. And he does it a third time. Still scales. So Aslan tells him, you have to let me undress you. So Eustace, although very scared of Aslan's great big lion claws, was also desperate to get out of this dragon skin. So he goes and lies at the feet of Aslan. And I'm going to let C.S. Lewis take it from here. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much more thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. Sounds familiar at all? So, taking off the flesh and living in the spirit is what we learned this week. And last week, and I was thinking about it. Hey, Arthur, we were doing K. Arthur and, on Tuesday morning, and she does all these diagramming. And I thought, <laughs> maybe diagramming would help. Because this whole old self, new self, it's kind of puzzling, isn't it? Right? So I was thinking about that. So I was thinking about, okay, this is us. Um, not a beautiful job. That's us. Okay? So, and then we have the old self, right? We have our old self in our flesh. And then, and what do we know about this old self? If you have a chance, read the beginning of Ephesians 2. I mean, it talks about that old self. You're dead. You're basically dead in your transgressions. and You're an enemy of God. It's just, in this old self, you know, this flesh tells this old stuff all the stuff it wants. And this old self really can't do anything about it. It just has to give in to the flesh because it has no power over the flesh whatsoever. Right? Even though the old self does do good stuff every once in a while, remember Heather said it's like filthy rags, even the motivation of why the old self does things can never be pleasing to God. So this old self is there, but then we come to know Christ and we are made alive in Him, right? And He gives us a new self. The old is gone, the new has gone, come. And not only did He give us a new self, but what else did He give us when we come to know Him? He gave us the Holy Spirit. He gave us the very Spirit Himself. And also it tells us, which is also confusing, that we are in Christ. Right? 
So when God sees us, he sees us through this filter right here. He looks at us and he sees us as righteous. He sees us as Christ because we are now in him. But we still have this thing, right? The flesh. That hasn't gone anywhere. But we now have power over this thing. We still have to deal with it. So I thought, well, maybe that kind of gives us a little bit of a visual to help us think about what we're talking about. We talked last week how um, Heather was finishing with, um, she said, you know, in Ephesians 4, through 24, it said, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In true righteousness and holiness. And, um... Whenever Justin goes away to a conference, once a year I, I try to go with him without the kids. And I use that as sort of my little spiritual retreat because he's at a conference for most of the day. And a few years ago, I was actually trying to prepare for another, a different lesson. And I was saying, Lord, just reveal your holiness to me and what that means for our righteousness. And that's what my prayer was that week. Show me your holiness and what that means for your righteousness. And he brought me to um, Ezekiel, chapter 36. Um, we know because of the work on the cross, right, God sees us as righteous. That's imputed righteousness that can never change, that can never be taken away. But what about our daily living? What about that practical righteousness? How it plays out. Is that important to God at all? Our practical righteousness? Should it be important to us at all? Um, that's my question. That's what I was asking God as he um, led me to these verses in um, Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to start in verse 20. Now in here... Um, Ezekiel is talking to the people of Israel, and they are scattered throughout the nations, right, because of their sin. And this is what he tells them, starting in verse 20. So we're on Ezekiel 36, verse 20. I forgot my glasses, so hopefully I can read this. That's, I mean, they're in my, we're good. Okay. <laughs> and whenever they went among and see, where, wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes." For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and will bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, 
and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let's just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would just be with us tonight. Lord, I feel like these words that you are sharing through your scripture are so important to our day-to-day lives. I just pray that you would give me the power of your spirit to communicate in a way that brings honor to you, that shows the truth in all its entirety. And that, Lord, that you would teach each of us what you want to teach us tonight. Penetrate our hearts. Help us to see clearly what you have revealed to us in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. So if we look at verse 20, again, it says, And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet... I'm just stopping there because how often do we hear that today? These are supposed to be Christians, and yet, what can you put in there? I mean, any number of things, right? Have you heard that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I feel like I share this once, but I have a, a friend who was Hindu, and she was complaining on Facebook about Christian hypocrisy. And another one of her friends wrote, My husband grew up Muslim, and then after much research, became a Christian. After three years of discovering contradiction after contradiction and hypocrisy after hypocrisy, he became an atheist. The behavior of many Christians does not help Christianity to be viewed as a more desirable faith for a non-believer. If anything, it has caused the Christian faith to become the enemy of many. That's sort of painful to hear, isn't it? And the thing is, and I know I've said this, and I'm sure you've all thought it too, um, you think, well, they cannot look at imperfect Christians. We're not perfect, and we never will be. So they need to look at the perfect Christ and not at us. But yet, we also have to say, how will they see Christ if not first through us? Right? So it's that sort of dilemma there. Um, And, you know, we often tend to excuse our own behavior by saying, but we're not perfect, we're broken, and that's true. We are not perfect, and we are broken, but that's only half the truth, right? So um, as I was studying this, Tozer wrote, we Christians must stop apologizing for our moral position and start exposing sin as the enemy of the human race and setting forth righteousness and true holiness as the only worthy pursuits for moral beings. And as I read that, I thought, well, somebody could read that and think, well, we must start exposing sin as the enemy and start looking around at the sin. But we know that the Bible does not call us to expose the sin of others or at least do that very quickly or often or at all most of the time. The Bible is calling us to look inside our own hearts, right, to expose the sin that's within us. And last week, as we studied Ephesians 1, that beautiful passage about our new identity in Christ and everything that we've been given in Christ. And that's the truth, right? That's who we are. 
And as we read in week one, and Rhonda touched on it, in Romans 6, those truths are reiterated there in Romans 6, who we are in Christ. What does Romans 6, 6 tell us? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. That's truth, right? Romans 6, 18. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. That's truth. Jerry Bridges in the book Pursuit, The Pursuit of Holiness said we need to reckon on the fact that we die to sin's reign, that it no longer has dominion over us, that God has united us with the risen Christ in all his power and given us his Holy Spirit to work in us. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. So we have died to sin's reign. It no longer has dominion over us. And that's truth. What else did we read about this past week, ladies? We didn't stop in Romans chapter 6, did we? We also had to read Romans chapter 7, right? Okay, so we get to Romans chapter 7. And what does Romans chapter 7 tell us? What did you find there? Anybody remember just the overall? If you can summarize Romans chapter 7, the bulk of it in like one sentence, what would you say? There's a struggle. I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. There you have it. Okay, so we get this truth of who we are and that we are dead to sin, right? It says it right there in Romans chapter 6. Then we get to 7, he says, but I don't do what I do, and I don't, and I, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. So there's just struggle that we read about and that we have to analyze in chapter 7. And you think, well, what's the deal, right? So why is the truth that I read in chapter 6 and elsewhere, Ephesians 1 and all over the Bible, why is that so different from the reality I see in chapter 7? I'm pretty certain that's exactly what God knew we were going to ask, right? <laughs> because, and you know, I've been, we've been studying um, at, a, at a class that I'm um, taking on Wednesday mornings, and they talk about context. Context is so important. And you know, this oftentimes we'll read, sometimes, you know, if you're having a good day, you read a whole chapter of the Bible, and you think, okay, I'm getting pretty good context. So I'm not just reading an isolated verse. I'm reading, you know, a whole chapter. I would say chapter 7 is one of those books in the Bible that you definitely cannot read in isolation. You cannot, because you will get a whole sermon on falsehood. You have to read it in the context that it is sandwiched between chapter 6 and chapter 8. That is so important to know, because there is a good reason that it is. Romans 8 gives us the reason, gives us the truth between the, the truth of chapter 6 and the struggle of chapter 7. And that's the answer of living by the Spirit. Because if we try 
to do it on our own, to do it in our own flesh, to do it in our own strength, we will fall into chapter 7 every single time, every time. What I want to do, I can't do. What I do, I don't want to do. That is going to be the story of our lives when we're trying to live it in our own strength, in our own power. But he doesn't leave us there. Thank God we have chapter 8, and he starts it in chapter 7, right? He says at the end, thanks be to God. He says, who will rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's look quickly at Romans 8. I'm almost done. Let's look quickly at Romans 8, verses 5 through 14. Would one of you like to read that? Romans 8, 5 through 14. set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. How, how far did you want me to go? Through 14. Oh, so true. For, the, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live accordingly to the flesh, you will die. But if, the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All right. Um, and so we won't have time to, you know, analyze this verse by verse, but there is great news in that if we live by the Spirit, we are laying aside the flesh. Now, did Eustace, was he able to pull off his own skin? Was he able to get rid of it? But what is the one thing he had to do? He did have to do something. And what did he have to do? Submit to Aslan. He had to lay at his feet, didn't he? Aslan wasn't going to force Jesus to come lay at his feet. And God, with all his grace and mercy, is not going to force us to come lay at his feet either. But when we do... He has this awesome power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. So one of my ladies at my table last week, after talking about the old self and new self, she's like, yeah, but practically, whoa, 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 you know, how does that look in our lives, you know? So how do we live by the Spirit? How do we live by the Spirit? Well, Romans 2, uh, 12 verse 2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, right? That's living by the flesh, being conformed to the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That would be living by the Spirit. The renewing of our minds. So how do we renew our minds? How? 
scripture. It's scripture. It's, it's the same thing Aslan did. I mean, Eustace did at Aslan. It's going and laying at the feet of Jesus. It's spending time meditating on his word. It's spending time just in communion with him in prayer, in fellowship with believers, in worship. That's the renewing of our mind. And as we're doing that, we're filling ourselves with the Spirit. Now, we have all of the Spirit, right, at salvation. We're not going to get any more of the Spirit ever. So this sanctification process, it's, it's like God's chipping away at the flesh. Now, we're always going to have the flesh. We're never until we meet God in eternity. It's always going to be there. But that sanctification process, as we're sitting at his feet and as he's making us more and more like his son, he's just chipping away at our flesh so that his spirit has more and more access, has more and more power in our lives. And we have to remember that whatever we feed will be stronger, right? As we go about our lives, as we walk through the world, the flesh is being fed. There's no way, really, to protect yourselves completely from it. But I can tell you that if you start your day or have time during the day with Jesus sitting at his feet, there is a protection that he puts around you. And also, there is that feeding, that filling of the Spirit, letting His Spirit live through you. If you go back to that Ezekiel passage that we were talking about in um, Ezekiel 36, the end of that, the, well, first in 23, the end of 23 says, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy, how? Through you. He wants to show himself to all those people that we were talking about earlier through us. He does. But we can't do it, and he knows it. So he says in 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new, put my new spirit in you. Remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my ways. He has to do it, ladies. He has to do it. Oswald Chambers says, it is quite true to say, I can't live a holy life, but you can decide to let Jesus make you holy. But there's no room for pride here, ladies, at all. Chambers also wrote, the holy man is the most humble man you can meet. Why? Because the first requirement to a spirit-filled life is total dependence upon God. It's the absolute total conviction that I can't do it. I can't do it. So total dependence upon God. The second requirement, and this is it, these two guys, total surrender. That's it. <laughs> Total surrender. Anytime I'm holding part of, my, part of me for myself, then I'm not living the spirit-filled life. So total dependence, knowing I can't do it. I can't. And total surrender. And then he comes in, and he lives his life through us. But we need to abide. We need to abide. And when we abide, he'll do the work. And that's the freedom. He does it. We don't have to, we don't have to conjure it up. We're going to fall into chapter 7 every time. I can't do it. 
But then would we just abide and sit at his feet and let him do it? He'll do it every time. That's freedom. And when Jesus set you free, girl, you are free indeed. <laughs> so um, now, will we ever achieve perfection? No. And we're going to talk about that next week. That's not going to happen in our lifetime, but I'll leave you with what Priscilla um, Schreier said in Armor of God. We do not have to wait till, till eternity to experience victory. We can have victory in our lives now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how desperately we want you, Lord, to make this a reality in our lives. How thankful we are that you did not leave us on our own. I just pray, Lord, that as we leave here, that no one would feel a yoke of burden of trying to do it, Lord, to trying to live, put off the flesh and live by the Spirit, that it would be another yoke of slavery, Lord, but that each woman here would find freedom at your feet. <clears throat> totally dependent, totally surrendered, allowing you to work in our lives as only you can do. And all for your glory, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.